0: So let's talk about music. My name is Sergio Barrer, and I'm a composer and a pianist with a classical background. And today I have as a guest Frank J. Oteri, who is a composer and a music journalist. Uh, Frank's music has been performed all over the world, including Lithuania, China, Russia, and of course, the United States. He actually is co-editor of New Music Box, a uh, web magazine that he founded. He's also the composer advocate at New Music USA. And he does represent contemporary classical music uh, all over the world. Hello, Frank, how are you?
1: Um, as okay as I can be in this weird, weird zone that we're all living in at the present moment.
0: Right. Yeah. Uh, you live in New York, right?
1: Indeed. Um, I always used to say um, I, I'm based in New York City, but am frequently elsewhere. And now I just say I'm under self-imposed house arrest in New York City.
0: OK. Well, that's a good place to be in house arrest. <laughs> <laughs> um, last podcast, we talked about contemporary classical music and we defined terms and we talked about. I talked with Bernardo Feldman, a composer that is local here in Los Angeles, and he's from Mexico too. And we talked about that. And I thought talking with you would be a very nice podcast because I know you have composed in different styles, and uh, you composed in microtonal, in a microtonal style, which is interesting. Not everybody knows what that is. This
1: yeah, I, I'm going to question, I wouldn't say that microtonality is a style, right. so much as it's a vocabulary. I mean, similarly, Schoenberg always said that the, the 12-tone system is the 12-tone method. It's a method, not a style.
0: All right. Uh, point taken. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a, it's a different way of composing.
1: Or perhaps not so much a different way of composing, but maybe a different way of conceptualizing music. Right. I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what, I, what I mean by that. Um, not every piece of music I compose is in a tuning system other than 12-tone equal temperament. 12-tone equal temperament is the system that everybody knows who has ever played an in-tune piano or an in-tune, fretted guitar. It's it's a system where the distance between every interval is the same, and there are 12 of them, and then you get an octave. Now, I say in systems other than 12 equal, but I will say everything I compose, I compose with a microtonal ear, which is to say that even when I'm using 12-tone equal temperament, I'm using it for what are its special qualities and it is a scale with many special qualities which is why it has become so popular in so many places in the world and why it has become a very dominant scale but what i would say is it's very exciting once you realize it's not the only possible tuning system you can
0: use yes in the arab world they divide the scale in 24 tones
1: Yes, That's... And not always equidistant. There, in fact, there are big debates yeah. among Arab music theorists and in different parts of the Arab world, there are some who use 24 tones within the Pythagorean system of pure fifths. the fifths are not tempered, and they lead slightly different they yield slightly different results than if you were to have equally tempered quarter tones, which is 24-tone equal temperament.
0: Right, the the Arab world when devoted all their creativity to their melodic lines, and that's how they came up with this 24 uh, tone system that they use. Uh, now, what is contemporary classical music doing with this separation of tones? Why why is it that we're getting back into that or into that the the western music world didn't use that in the well,
1: you know i mean this 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 could be a discussion that can take us hours and i'd be delighted to talk about it for hours because the history of intonation in some ways mirrors in in the west anyway mirrors the history of 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 so-called western so-called classical music i use the so-called the scare quotes because these concepts are a lot larger than these words imply that they are. But the tuning system that was used in medieval Europe and the tuning that was used in the Renaissance and the tunings that were used in the Baroque and the early classical period, none of those tunings were equal temperament. They were different and the scale evolved. Um, In medieval times, most of Gregorian chant and early polyphonic music like macho Use this this scale that I'm calling for lack of a better name. There are other names for it. The Pythagorean scale, named after the ancient Greek mathematician Pythagoras, who had this monochord and divided up intervals, and all of the fifths are equal. Now, calling it the Pythagorean scale is somewhat ethnocentric because Ling Lun in China came up with that same exact scale thousands of years before Pythagoras, and in fact, that scale is still used, mostly used in Chinese classical music. And to call it Chinese is also ethnocentric because the ancient Babylonians had it before the Chinese did. So, you know, so are default. But anyway, that's one, one digression among many. When the Renaissance happened, you'll note that in medieval times, major thirds were considered dissonant. Right, but right. in the Re- Renaissance, they're consonant. Now, you learn music history, and people tell you this kind of without explaining it, and it's like, what, did people's perception change? No. The third was a different interval. The major third of the, the so-called Pythagorean Linlun ancient Babylonian scale is actually C to G, G to D, D to A, A to E, all those fifths. So, the third overtone, the ninth overtone, the 27th overtone. Then going up to the 81st overtone, it is the 81st overtone brought into the octave. So if you divide it, it's the interval of 81 over 64. Okay. The pure third, The pure third is actually much simpler. It's the fifth overtone, which if you do that math is the 80th overtone, but it's actually the fifth the difference between those is so shocking it's so glaring you can actually hear uh as supposed to ah uh, yeah you know, that's that that sharp third so in the renaissance all of a sudden you have all this music with all these beautiful p- parallel movement in in major thirds because suddenly that interval was available to them suddenly And they had it in England first, and then it wound up on the continent. But of course, other parts of the world had it for thousands of years. In West Africa, in Ghana, there's all this traditional music with major thirds. Well, they have have a pure third there, whereas in medieval Europe and in the Arab world to this day, there isn't that pure third. There's this Pythagorean third. And the equally tempered third of the 12-tone equal tempered scale is smack in the middle of that pure third and that sharp Pythagorean third. Closer to the Pythagorean third, so slightly more dissonant, but not as dissonant, and we can still hear it as a consonant. Well wow. <laughs> yeah. so then you right. get to the Baroque, right? You get to the Baroque period, and the problem with having these pure thirds and having these lovely harmonic chords is you start transposing and you start modulating into outer keys, and you need more than 12 keys otherwise it starts getting really messy it starts getting you know it starts sounding out of tune when you play in a flat let's say so that's why in the baroque period you don't have a lot of music say in c sharp major or d flat major um because those keys were no good you have these mean tone tunings that were somehow a compromise of pythagorean and the pure just interval's called mean tone scales. Then you got to well-tempered scales, and then eventually, at some point in the 19th century, we get to equal temperament. So when we say, okay, now Western classical music is starting to pay attention to microtonality again, the reality is it's been microtonal all along. And so you'd say, like, you know, maybe from the latter half of the 19th century, Pianos were starting to get tuned in, in this, as strict as possible, given non-machines, you know, given tuning by ear, of equal temperament. That time that equal temperament, the 12-note equal temperament, was the one scale, was less than half a century because already in the first decade of the 20th century, Richard Stein in Germany wrote a cello and piano piece in quarter tones. Alosh Haba, a, a Moravian composer in Czechoslovakia, now the Czech Republic, was advocating quarter tones, was writing music in quarter tones and sixth tones in the 1920s, 1919, wow. 1920s. Julian Carrillo in Mexico, right. in 1895, before any of these folks came up with this idea he called the sonido trese, the right. 13th town. So he was messing around with 96 tones per octave. So, and then there was a, a Russian, um, Ivan Vishnikovsky, who um, fled the Bolsheviks and lived in exile in France, who had a quarter-tone piano built for him, and also did music in in sixth tones and twelfth tones. And then in America, a bunch of people, Ives was experimenting with quarter-tones, this other, you know, Mildred Cooper was writing music in California in quarter-tones in in the late 20s, early 1930s. There's all this activity of all of these people in various parts of the world. It's very interesting. And then Harry Parch, who didn't like any of these equal-tempered systems and, and came up with his own 43-note scale of all pure intervals. Of what? Avoid
0: what? Of all
1: pure intervals, like the pure third I was talking about before, pure fifths, but he took it further, and, and pure sevenths, pure elevenths, these, like, these tones that have somehow been banished from, from Western classical music. In fact, there's an Italian musical theorist Giuseppe Farlino in the renaissance who advocated this seventh harmonic but it never wound up getting used by the majority of composers it was it was rejected but if you hear brass ensembles and somebody plays a bad note i pu- I'm, I'm putting scare quotes right it's not a bad note you know they're they're blowing and they're getting a seventh harmonic instead this out of tune harmonic well it's actually in tune but it's not in tune in 12 tone equal temperament. I see. It's outside of it. All right. Anyway, you weren't expecting such a long answer. But that's well,
0: no, I,
1: <laughs> I, I just, uh, my audience,
0: I, I do this uh, podcast for music fans that are not musicians particularly. So probably this went over over a few people's heads.
1: Well, let's let's bring it back into their heads. What I'll say um, is, anybody can hear these intervals. Right. You know, I I I think that maybe the math scares people away. And I and I got to tell you, a lot of classical classically trained musicians, people who are conservatory trained, who are immersed in Western classical music, who don't know this back history, they are perhaps more resistant to thinking outside 12-tone equal temperament than the general public. No, I'm, I'm because we are right. so trained in this system that seems like it's all inclusive, you know, but it's not.
0: Definitely. And, uh, you know, there is a step between Bach's well-tempered uh, scale to the equal temper scale. You yes. Know? There is definitely a step. Bec- it's just the name is different. One is well-tempered and the other one is equal-tempered.
1: Well, that's the thing. When you start asking questions like the question, wow, why were, why were major thirds considered dissonant in the medieval period, but they're, they're consonant in the Renaissance? Why? Right? right? And then the other question, why, with the well-tempered clavier of, of, of Johann Sebastian Bach, why would Bach write a prelude and fugue in every key if every key was the same? The whole reason it's such a work of genius is that every key is subtly different from each other. And he's writing pieces that work in each of those keys. That that, that first prelude in C major, that beautiful arpeggiated figure that goes to the third, it does that because in the key of C in the well temperament that he uses, that third is much closer to a pure third, that, that, that pure fifth overtone so it rings out. When you hear people play it on a piano in equal temperament, it sounds kind of stiff because it's too sharp, right? Now, now yeah. that scale, I mean, this is another amazing digression. I recently got hold of a, an incredible recording of The Well-Tempered Clavier by an Australian harpsichordist named Peter Wath- Wathorn, and he uses, there's an American musicologist whose name escapes me at this very moment. Really? Uh, it'll come <laughs> back in. In the course of what I'm talking, his name will come back to me, I'm sure. Um, or maybe not. Maybe it'll come back to me at three o'clock in the morning, as so often happens with me. Um, but um, for years, people thought the well-tempered clavier was in, people were claiming it was an equal temperament. And in recent years, people were saying, well, it's got to be in a well temperament. And a lot of people have been advocating for this tuning called Werkmeister three. Now we're getting technical. But Bach was from Thuringia in in eastern Germany. It was based in Leipzig for many years. And it's recorded that he was a huge fan of Dietrich Buxtehude and walked all the way to hear Buxtehude. You know, there were no cars, there were no airplanes, there were no buses, trains, or anything back then. And he made this trek to hear Buxtehude play organ. And Buxtehude's organ was most likely tuned by Andreas Werkmeister, who advocated a well-temperament that's now known as Werkmeister III. So a lot of people say well-tempered clavier was in Werkmeister III but there's this american musicologist who is convinced that a drawing that bach made on the fa- on the, the manuscript of the first book of the well tempered clavier is instructions on how to tune the harpsichord to get the wow. tuning he wanted and this australian harpsichordist recorded it using that tuning and wow is it a revelation wow It sounds so powerful, so beautiful. He's also a phenomenal player, but there's, there are things, there are details that come out in that music. And, and that's why, you know, when, when you said at first you write in the microtonal style, you know, Bach was microtonal, right. You know, Michelle was microtonal. Um, Hava, Harry Parch, you know, Glenn Branca, you know, all these people, the rock band Sonic Youth retuned their guitars and, and, created microtonal alternative rock songs that are incredible. Don Ellis, jazz trumpeter, had a quarter tone trumpet outfitted for him and, and and did jazz big band music in quarter tones. So microtonal is not a style. Okay. It, it's so it's, a, it's a way of thinking about intervals.
0: Okay. All right. I I'm tempted to explain what an interval is and what the overtones are for some people. I mean the interval is just two notes, the distance between two notes in a scale. And the overtones are when you when you play a C, you don't just hear a C, you hear the C above it and then the G above it. And then it, it has all this complexity to the sound. And out of those harmonics, we have, uh, we have developed scales and we have developed the whole of the music system.
1: So well, the way I like to describe the overtone is like if you take a string, right, um, and... You take a, a piece of wire and you pluck it, right? Right. It moves. The waveform moves, the string as it's vibrating, divides itself in half, divides itself in three parts, in four parts, in five parts, in six parts, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven to infinity. And each of those divisions of those string produces a different sound. So when you hear that string plucking you're actually hearing all those other pitches as well as that pitch, but they're quieter. So you're hearing this like cloud of pitches, which is why a major triad sounds so satisfying because each note contains a major triad.
0: I see. Great. Thank you. That's, very, yeah. that's a very good way of explaining it. So that's when we're talking here when with microtonal systems and uh, microtonal use is the use of different parts of the scale that are not contained in the 12 uh, equal-tempered notes that you can get at any piano, or that, you know, the, the development of harmony depended on the notes being, of all the instruments, being able to sound more or less similar. Otherwise, there was a great cacophony of sound, and and it was an achievement to be able to play in harmony. You know that in Teotihuacan, they found flutes that there, w- there were three flutes, and they were tuned in triads. That was in the ninth century of uh, our era, and uh, but they didn't follow up on it. But anyway, you know, man has always been exploring this uh, the sound systems, and it's very interesting because. Uh, you you composed a piece uh, that is divides the octave in 36 intervals, right? And yes. I'm thinking that that has to be. I was thinking, how do you do that with a normal guitar? And then I thought, well, if you play exactly in the middle, you get the the tone. But if you play more close to the frets to right or left, you can get a different sound. Now, is that how
1: you? Did it? No, no, interesting. Well, <laughs> so actually, I, I, should, I should explain a little bit, first of all, the Y36. Um, uh-huh. Yeah. Um, actually, it, it was the uh, German based Italian composer pianist Ferruccio Busoni, who was the composition teacher of Kurt Weil, among many other people. Um, but Busoni in 1907 wrote this essay called Sketch for a New Aesthetic in Music. And he said, well, if we want to develop music past chromatic tonality, we need more intervals. We need to expand the scale. And maybe instead of dividing the tone in half for semitones, Mm -hmm. to divide it into three parts, we'd have 18 notes. But then to include the notes that we have on the current 12-note equal tempered scale, to reconcile third and half tones, we would need sixth tones. So we would need 36. Now, the nice thing, the interesting thing is, he wrote this essay, but he never wrote any microtone music. He never composed any music using 36 pitches per octave, which is very weird because even Talamon wrote a short prelude using a 55 tone scale that survives. There's a 55-tone piece of music by Telemann. But Busoni, who actually wrote an essay advocating for 36, never wrote in 36. And I thought, well, I've got to make that right somehow and (laughs) use this scale. Um, But I I thought what was interesting is, is that he didn't use it, but other composers did. And they came up with these really elaborate ways to do it. So they would take three pianos and tune them, tune one a third of a tone up, another a third of a tone lower, you get the thirty-six that way. And, you know, that's a lot to have three pianos that match right. and to tune them. So I thought, okay, what if I did this with a rock band, right? Three electric guitars, one of them's A equals four hundred and forty hertz, which uh-huh. is you know the vibration that standard vibration for the pulse of a, of the pitch a right one is 448 hertz one is 442 and voila three electric guitars and you have a 36 tone equal tempered scale wow so i i worked with several bands to do this the initial band that did it i didn't play in the group but i tuned their guitars for them i gave them i had i had my my digital um pitch pipe as it were and i played them what a was either at 440 442 or 448 and they tuned their guitars and then when they played this music i wrote it was in tune in 36 equal
0: wow all right this is fabulous I, this is really fascinating i want to our uh, our audience to hear this piece it's a it's not the whole piece it's one movement of the piece the piece is called uh Imagined overtures, right? And what is the yeah? I called
1: it imagined overtures because it was it was kind of paying debt to Busoni, that he had this idea but he never made the overture to write this music. And I thought, well, he said that the the, the future of music would be thirty six tone tuning, and from my vantage hundred years later, the future of music was rock. So it had to be thirty six tone rock if it was going to be Busoni's future. Okay. And, that, and so that, that was the idea for imagined overtures. And um, each, each of the movements was based on a concept of creation since overture is a beginning. And the first movement was called natural selection um, as in, in terms of the Darwinian theory. Um, and the second movement, I mean, they're all sort of tongue in cheek names. The second movement is intelligent design, which is this theory that, you know, things were created by intelligent design. And it was, it was a pun because I thought the design for that particular movement was quite intelligent. It goes the same forward and backwards. It's a palindrome. Oh, and see. it uses this scale, and it also uses this crazy quintuple meter rhythm that has all these metric modulations. It's actually, it sounds nothing like Elliot Carter's music, but it's very indebted to Elliot Carter's theories of metric modulation
0: okay right. <laughs> so. <laughs> so here it is uh here it is we're gonna we're gonna last five minutes uh we're gonna hear the whole thing and then we'll get back to you
1: sounds good Thank you very much. Thank that you. Worked. And I wanna thank the Los Angeles Guitar Eight, the amazing, amazing group that recorded that and released that recording of that. They it was originally written for three electric guitars, um, retuned, as I as I described, a um, an electric bass that was Scordatura that had two of the the strings tuned differently so that it could all be played with the normal frets and then a drummer, but what the LA Electric Gate decided to do with it is to double all the parts so that some of those fast movements that were really, really hard for the original bands that played them suddenly made a lot more sense um, and uh, they were able to do this, this very tricky maneuver if you were listening very carefully in that movement where it cycles through all these triads, it's actually a 36-tone row of 12 triads that that comprise the 36 notes, and they all go by really fast. And it's amazing how they did that between the players. It really required a lot of coordination, and they weren't conducted. So, you know, amazing that they were able to pull that off.
0: Yes, you know, it occurs to me that uh, it sounds kind of minimalist because you cannot do you cannot go all over the place and really feel the differences and appreciate the microtonal quality of the thing if you go all over the place all the time so the 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 row the 36 tones in sequence with the triads each one being I could see that but it and it gives me the idea of minimalism and yet it was
1: interesting because, <laughs> well, why, why do you? Sorry, I'll contend that I, I am very deeply influenced by a lot of minimalist music, and I find it a lot of it really fascinating. But I suppose you can hear in my own music and, and the way I talk about it what my music has been, and I guess that's where you can get into stylistic, right? I'll say that, that microtonality is not a style. Uh, But minimalism perhaps is, and serialism perhaps is, even though the 12-tone method is a system. And what, what I've tried to do in my own music is somehow find a rapprochement, if you will, between minimalism and serialism. I use both. I use rows. I use repetition. I use um, minimalist techniques like additive processing and phasing. But I also use, you know, combinatoriality. I also use, you know, Carter's metric modulations. I, I use all this stuff. And, and you know, and, and, it's, and it's a rock band piece. You know, this piece was done in rock clubs in Brooklyn and in Manhattan. And, you know, it, it had a life being done in various clubs.
0: That's fascinating. That's really, I think, we, I was in a discussion with Bernardo last week about uh, what is good contemporary classical and what is not so good. It, it's such a subjective thing and it's such a, but when I see something like this with the structure that it has and the sound that it has as it, this is good. This, this is good music because it is interesting. It goes somewhere. It goes from somewhere to somewhere and it takes me with it you know and it doesn't push me away with excessive dissonance well
1: You're... you know this is interesting i i had this bizarre epiphany wow um nearly wow definitely 35 years ago or more uh when i was an undergrad at columbia university which was at kind of at the height of this war between so-called uptown music and so-called downtown music this this the fight between minimalists on the one hand or conceptualists people who advocated chance and determinacy and people who advocated really really vigor, rigorously structured music you know like um integral serialism and and you know, music that kind of came out of that very very complex music and at the time i thought i was rebelling against those folks Writing downtown music, you know, doing minimalist music, but I realized that these two systems really aren't that different from each other. So when I say I'm reconciling these musics, maybe they sound different, but a lot of the goals are the same and And my feeling is I want to create i want to use all these structures, all of these concepts because they're really amazing concepts, but i at the end of the day, I want people to hear them you know, what's the point of writing music with 36 tones
0: it's if so- you
1: can't hear those tones, right? Exactly. It's like, you know, like I do a lot of music with words and I think it's very important. And I, I found it very interesting. And I, I might be jumping this conversation a bit to talk about that, but I, I was a little perplexed and maybe a little saddened um, When in our email exchange, I I sent you a vocal piece, which we're going to listen to a bit, and you said you couldn't hear the words. And I think it's because MP3s are abysmal. But I really make it a point when I set text, I really want people to be able to hear what the words are. Because once again, just like those 36 tones, why are you setting words if people aren't going to hear what they are? What's the point?
0: Exactly. I agree. Uh, And it's good that you brought that up. We're going to go away from the mic. I don't know if we're getting away from this, but because this is a piece that I don't know how you composed it, but what attract what is very attractive besides the words that you know we bring kind of uh, contemporary and current. Uh, besides that, the fact that the singer sings in two ranges that's really interesting. i I've, I've seen it before recently in a pop competition actually you know there was this singer that could sing tenor and then he went in a soprano voice counter countertenor and uh, so this is happening you know not just in the classical musical world and uh, tell me tell me something about this piece how how yeah.
1: I, well i i just want to you know backstep you know just like i i really it was very important that i acknowledge the the interpreters who did um, imagined overtures, because I think, you know, this this piece would have just been a crazy idea in my head, you know, if it wasn't realized so effectively by them. Um, when all the way back, the piece that I, I I now consider my opus one, even though I don't use opus numbers, was a setting of 14 sonnets by my then high school math teacher, who's remained a very close personal friend and mentor, Jim Murphy, who um, grew up in Texas and is three-quarter Cherokee Indian, and actually exposed me to the variety of music and sound and thought and poetry outside of so-called Western, the Western canon. Really made me think in terms of the whole world and really led me to pursue um, my studies in ethnomusicology, which had a profound influence on me as a composer, but more importantly, as a listener and musical thinker. Um, I say all that because I set these poems of his at the end of when I was in high school, and they had such a crazy range because I was trying to reflect what his words were, and no one was able to sing. it, And so this piece kind of laid on the shelf for decades, not the piece we're listening to. I I say this all, all as a prelude, Um, it sat on a shelf for decades, except, you know, I could sing it. I would do it for people I didn't sing it well because I'm not really a trained singer, and I said, well, I could do it, and I'm not really a trained singer. Imagine a trained singer doing this, and all these trained singers, oh, well, you know, once you're trained, you can't do that because that's bad for your voice, blah, blah, blah. So no one would touch this. No one would touch this song cycle with a 10-foot pole, and my wife, Trudy Chan, who's a phenomenal pianist, among many other things that she's phenomenal at um started a duo with this amazing singer philip chia who's also a a fabulous choral conductor and just an all-around great musician pianist um an extremely musical brilliant person and the, the irony is when i wrote this this thing that no singer could do i think he he was three years old and living in singapore right And so they were rehearsing and he sings in baritone range, but also he has the male soprano range and he does them both and, and does, you know, wonderful things in both. And, and I heard them rehearsing and I thought, Hmm, maybe he'd be willing, maybe they'd be willing to tackle this thing that I had written, you know, when I was a teenager and they did. So this piece, you know, finally got its premiere in decades after it was written. And um, I was so thrilled with that. And it was such a joy, especially for for me to to witness Jim Murphy finally hearing my settings of his poetry and that he was able to be there for that premiere meant so much to me. Um, But I was so glad that they did that, that when I received a commission, from the ASCAP foundation, uh, Charles Kingsford fund. They said I could, the commission was to write a contemporary song cycle. It's that the fund is specifically to get composers to write present day composers to, to, to deal with the art song. And they said, you know, you could write for anybody you want. I thought, wow. Well, since Philip and Trudy did this amazing thing with this piece that I had written, you know, 30-plus years earlier, I should write a new piece specifically for them. And so that's what Versions of the Truth is. And because Philip has two ranges, I thought I wanted to set poetry that really could be served specifically by those two ranges that would be, as it were, dialogues, Involving one person. Oh, I see. And, and I came across, I was in The Strand, which is this wonderful, wonderful used bookstore in Manhattan that I, I miss so much having not been able to be there. My daughter gave me, gave
0: me a, a T-shirt of The Strand. She brought yeah. To
1: New York. Yeah, anyway. I, I love it. I, I mean, I love the serendipity of finding things. I chanced upon a poetry of Stephen Crane. Stephen Crane is known as a late 19th century American novelist, right? He wrote a book called The Red Badge of Courage, which is required reading to a lot of people. It's It's got the most harrowing descriptions of Civil War battle scenes. I see. Now, the irony is that Stephen Crane never witnessed any of this firsthand. He never witnessed that battle. It was all in his head but he did it so brilliantly, he he wrote better than anybody who actually did witness this stuff, right? I had no idea he wrote poetry and I chanced upon his poetry and it's amazing. It's weird and wild and crazy. It's first edition, everything was published in all capital letters. Wow, okay. And they're all really, really short poems and they're all really strange. And, And when I said poetry, I feel like I I don't want to inject my own voice too much. I feel like it really needs to serve that poetry. It really, the music I write really needs to reflect the words, the meanings of the words, and the milieu in which the words were created. So, you know, how do I, as an early 21st century composer, deal with this late, 19th century american poet well you know it's interesting these poems sort of predict the future they're weirdly aphoristic they're they, you know they're like ezra pound things ezra pound would write decades later or you know or for e cummings or any of you know, gertrude stein or even all of these you know experimentalists crane was sort of ahead of them doing that but at the same time he was entrenched so I wrote this whole piece that plays on the games I love to play of minimalism and serialism, but it's all based on half diminished chords because that was all the rage in um, in late 19th century Harmony and you know the harmony of the 1890s and 19 aughts. And I felt I didn't want to do anything that he would have heard and would have not been able to somehow have some understanding for. So I took these concepts and created this work that's sort of faux late 19th century but using all of these other devices that would have been available to a composer had they used it. So, it yeah, so it's not microtunnel, although there, there, there actually is one quarter tone in the song cycle, not in this song. At some point, there's a quarter tone because remember, there were people starting to experiment with quarter tones right at that time. As I mentioned, we were talking Carrillo in 1895. Crane was still alive. Um, so, so I'm playing with all of these things. I'm playing with all of these strange rhythmic things also. It, there's a lot of very odd metrical stuff in there involving... Alternations between triple and duple meter, metric modulations, changing relationships between rhythms. It gets very, very tricky, but in a way that maybe Brahms, had he wanted to go further in some of the places he was going, went. Schoenberg always loves to say that his music came directly out of Brahms. And I sort of feel like this piece does too, along in in much the same way. Um, But to speak to the poems, the poems are really weird and strangely timely. I I completed this in 2012. And I, I feel like in a way it predicted the last four years in the United States. The piece is called Versions of the Truth. And it's all about how you really don't know what truth is the truth is this elusive thing and all the poems i set were about that were about truth and in fact i'm going to read you this poem that we're going to listen to the setting of because i i think it really conveys this duality of of the not knowing what truth is at the same time wanting truth the last thing i'm going to say about it is it It basically hovers in the key of A, which is 440, right? Right. And at the very end, it ends in A flat, but that's A415 because we don't even know what truth is about pitch. I see. Cool. So, I mean, there are all these metaphors in the music that are are reflections of what's in Stephen Crane's poetry, but here's the poem. All right. And as, as you'll hear, it's got a narrator, but it's got these different voices. So I, I exploit Philip's different ranges by having one of his voices be the narrator and the other being the speaker, right? Truth, said a traveler, is a rock, a mighty fortress, often have i been to it even to its highest tower from whence the world looks black truth said a traveler is a breath a wind a shadow a phantom long have i pursued it but never have i touched the hem of its garment and I believed the second travel for truth was to me, a breath, a wind, a shadow, a phantom, and never had I touched the hem of its garment. Okay. Now truth in this song is always an A. Oh, okay. guess to that 440. And you'll hear he goes to a very high A, which is a really, really rough note for any singer. And, um, but that, that high A, the climax of that setting, it had to be A, and we talked about it. It's like, well, couldn't you make it another pitch? It's like, no, it has to be, it has to be 440, <laughs> okay. you know, because, because of the poem.
0: Yeah. I get it. Okay, let's hear it. Sure. Let's
1: hear the song now. True tower from whence that's it um i see yeah you you catch the words now
0: yeah i i cut yeah i understood them now i but don't you know i'm from mexico and uh many times i watch tv in english with subtitles just to make sure i don't miss words so i'm not the normal listener here in america because i it's it's my it's actually my third language, English. So, wow. So it's not like sometimes I miss it. But when you go to the to the high pitch, the traveler thing, it didn't make sense to me. What what is he saying, Trump? But after hearing the poem now it, and understanding the concept,
1: uh, yeah. Um, what I'll say, you know, there's a, there's an irony. Of course, it's very hard to hear specific syntactical meaning when you're singing that high, or actually even when you're singing that low. It really, it really does go to the extremes. Yeah. Now I've always been very, very, as I said, very conscious. When I set words, I want you to be able to hear them. A very funny thing happened to me though, when my performance oratorio Machunis, which I created with Lucio Potsi, uh was staged in Lithuania 15 years ago, actually this week. It's the 15th anniversary of that being done there. I very, very carefully set all of Lucho's words and really made it a point that you could hear them. But, of course, all these singers had Lithuanian accents to varying degrees, and they pronounced words different ways. And it came to be in my head that I now love hearing it pronounced that way. (laughs) <laughs> you know, that 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 i feel like you know even though that wasn't originally how i conceived of it i think it sounds even better that way. so you know it's 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 a funny it's funny how that works um but i think you know to to the point that i made before music only comes alive when it's interpreted and um and performed and by people who really make it their own, and I, I feel in in that song, you know, you can hear that that Philip and Trudy really made it their own and really brought out things in it um, aside from the vocal line, which is really, really nuts. <laughs> you know, the piano part is also really nuts. Um, the The two travelers the phrases are very similar, but they're, they're metrically different. There's like four against three versus three against four. And, and it's, you know, you, you, you hear it and if, when you look at the notation, it's like, it's really nutty stuff, but they, they turned it into music. They made it work. Yes,
0: definitely, I could I, it did work. And the, I, the concept of uh, truth being really unreachable, Truth with a capital T, you know, it's it's not reachable by any of us mortals. But it it came across that that uh, you know the concept. It's interesting. The only way it could have been more contemporary, it would have been instead of uh, versions of the truth. That's how you. That's how it's called, right? Uh, if you would have called it alternative truths, it would have been perfect. But for yeah. you, right? <laughs>
1: Yeah. Well, I mean the the point was I mean the, the title versions of the truth already is like oh, wait a minute, there's only the truth and everything else is lies. But if there are versions right. of the truth, what does that mean? Exactly. And so, you know, that was what I was trying to unpack. And and the idea really came out of these Stephen Crane poems. But I, I feel you know they really are contemporary, but at the same time, you know, they're wonderfully old-fashioned. I mean, that song despite its crazy range and despite the crazy metrical things going on it in it is very much designed to be like a 19th century lead okay you know that it, it it could it could have been theoretically you know maybe had hugo wolf lived longer you know maybe he would have started writing music like that i don't know
0: yeah but it was very nice i i really have to thank you for spending this time with me. I know that we could talk for a few hours, and uh, but I it was really very interesting, and I, and I really want to thank you for making the time to share your music with us. Uh,
1: thank you. Thank you for, for inviting me and, 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 and having me, and, and uh, I, I need to start listening to your podcast. Do you do this once a week? How does this work? Yeah. Every Tuesday.
0: Wow. I release one every Tuesday.
1: It's fantastic. A, well, send me the link and you just you just got a new listener.
0: Okay, well, thank you very much. And uh, I hope we can do this again. I would love to. We will do it. We will do it again. All right? I thank want to sure. see, you know, I want to see, this is new, so I want to see how much the technical stuff goes over and how much it doesn't go over. I, I'm looking forward to seeing. And I learned a lot and i can see where your music is coming from it's coming from a from a deep musical place combined with an intellectual place and that's a great combination
1: but i but i what i really want to emphasize above it all and i hope that comes across is despite the intellectual processes and the thought that goes into it at the end of the day it really is about emotions it's an emotional visceral reaction you know like i read that poem and it struck me emotionally I, and emotionally about never being able to attain truth and what that means internally
0: yeah it showed it, it is not the voice it's not an intellectual exercise that's for sure i've heard music that is an intellectual this is not this is you have the emotional part that's what i mean by a deep musical part you know that it comes music comes from inside from your emotions and also there is an intellectual component so thank you very much for sharing that with us and uh i wish you good luck with the covid and
1: uh you too and uh stay safe stay safe stay well yes and uh that's it for the day thank you very much thank you bye-bye